Sarah. Hi, Allison. So since we last spoke, we've now been reconfined. This is the second COVID confinement um, after March. Um, it's been in place now for two weeks. Should last at least till the end of the month, right? That's right. So we now need certificates to go outside, the same as we did back in the spring. Mm -hmm. uh, people are being encouraged to work from home, but a lot of companies are still having people come in one or two days a week. Yeah, and, and schools are open, more businesses open in the spring. It, it feels like a lighter version of the previous lockdown. Exactly. Although we can't travel more than uh, one kilometer from home, apart from going to work like I do. So um, that's one of the, you know, really restrictive rules. Are you respecting the rules, Sarah? Um, I, I, yeah, I want to say yes. I mean, the 135 euro fine for not having the certificate and, and going beyond the one kilometer is definitely dissuasive. Mm. But I have to say that, that this time around, I guess because we're used to it and maybe there's a little more of a sense of where COVID is spread and not, going outside seems a little less fraught. And, and I might admit to um, going out more than once to get some air, printing out a second certificate, but um, don't tell anyone. No, 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 I wouldn't dream of it. But in any case, if it's any consolation, uh, you're not the only one because the latest polls suggest that some 60% of the French are not respecting lockdown. It's a tricky one, though, isn't it? Yeah, but I guess you can ask, you know, what does respecting the lockdown mean? You know, does it mean mm. going outside more than once? Does it mean people gathering in groups when they shouldn't? All this, of course, isn't really clear in terms of what we actually need to do to, to address this, um, this virus. Yeah, because the virus itself is circulating massively. France has record numbers of infections. And the goal now is really to get them down, the government says, to a maximum of 5,000 a day so that we can be released from confinement by Christmas. Yeah, a non-confined Christmas. Stores, of course, are really crossing their fingers because right now restaurants, bars, cafes are shut, as are any shops uh, selling what is considered non-essential goods. Yeah, but what is a non-essential or an essential item? The government mm. says essential items are food, hygiene products and electronic goods. But what about clothes? What about makeup, toys and books, of course? Yeah, books. Books has been a big one. Uh, bookstores here in Paris freaked out at the beginning of the confinement, um, saying, how are they going to ever sell books if people can't come in and browse? And the government then, instead of, uh, you know, allowing them to be open, decided, no, we're going to cordon off book sections in supermarkets to not give these bookshops competition. Yes, yeah, so we had some amazing pictures of these huge sort of piles of books wrapped up in black plastic looking like they were some kind of uh, counterfeit goods or, you know, forbidden merchandise. Yeah, and there was like police tape and it was just like, you know, no-go zones, I guess. Yeah. Um, most stores, it has to be said, are being allowed to do what's called click and collect. But of course, that that really only works best in, in a city like Paris when you do have a critical mass of stores around, you're willing to go around and pick up what you've ordered. Um, you're talking about more remote suburban rural areas, they don't have as much choice. No, I was fascinated to read recently that France has 3,200 bookshops across the country, but a fifth of those are here in Paris. Yeah, yeah. So a critical mass of bookshops here, of course, they're upset. Um, 
cordoning off, of course, of supermarket sections has has definitely spawned some comedic reactions to really the absurdity of it. Um, there was one video in which I saw a guy who went grocery shopping in his underwear to make the point that clothes are essential. <laughs> but anyway, there are serious questions about the economy here in France and the survival of small businesses in particular. It seems as though for now, uh, those that will survive these lockdowns and are allowed to be open are the big chain stores. Yeah, yeah. Despite subsidies being given to small businesses, to restaurants and all that kind of thing, um, even the big names are starting to fall for lack of customers. Clothing stores are already going bankrupt, although that might predate the lockdown a bit um, with the rise of online shopping. Um, but there are major questions about where people are going to go shopping with the holiday season approaching. I mean, Amazon, I guess that's the fear. Um, there's no good solutions. France really does seem to be struggling with all this. Yeah, and because in the spring, of course, there was no question about all of this. The economy came second to the health crisis. Now it seems like there's a lot more open discussion about whether the price of lockdown in terms of its impact on both the economy and society more generally perhaps isn't a bit too high. So besides coronavirus, um, the political discourse these days here in France has been kind of dominated by integration, especially when it comes to Muslims. Yes, President Macron made a speech in October, didn't he, about separation and what he called separatism. And in that speech, he talked about the need to address inequality, like in housing and jobs, as it could lead to radicalization. He's also talking about, you know, putting in place a French version of Islam. Kind of nuanced, uh, but any attempt at that, of course, was overtaken by the terrorist attacks right after the beheading of the teacher, Samuel Paty, the attacks in Nice. And now the language is much more about the clash of civilizations and, and talk about rooting out Islamists. In France, of course, a lot of this is often seen, at least on the right, as a problem of immigration. But I've always thought it's worth looking at France's own history in all this. The deep-seated inequality has some of its roots in France's legacy of colonialism. Christelle Tarot, who's a historian focusing on colonization and decolonization, um, says it has a major influence on how France works today and how France sees itself today. This history impacts all the in individual person, all the family, and of course, all the uh, French society. I was part of this history. A very important part of my family was born in, in North Africa. My grandfather was born uh, in Morocco, and they stay in Morocco. So it, it's a personal question too, you know. So I know what, what it is the question of culpability, of repentance, of reparation. Tarot talked to me about the need to, what she says, rewrite the colonial history of France, which starts with just talking about it. Um, a quick history lesson here. So we're talking about the second colonial empire started in 1830 when France conquered Algiers. Then France moved further into Africa and into China and the South Pacific. In general, France sent few people to live in the countries they took over, except for North Africa and Algeria in particular. Which became part of France in 
became a French department. Yeah, um, this empire lasted until after the Second World War with anti-colonial movements challenging France and other Europeans' authorities. Um, the Algerian War went from 1954 to its independence in 1962. Independence movements elsewhere went slightly more peacefully. Um, all of this was a time of reckoning to a certain extent for France. And yet it's not really taught that much in schools, is it, Sarah? No, no. Aside from like the dates and places, the impacts on the people and on France is is pretty absent, even though the historian Christelle Tarot told me that teaching and talking about it could help France move forward today. She says that France isn't unique in the 18th and 19th centuries with its colonization, but that the French specificity is the French Revolution, and it's putting forward these now famous ideals, liberté, fraternité, égalité. Liberty, Egality, Fraternity and Laicity. The French identity is exactly that. These four principles, it's very important for the construction of the modern nation at the end of the 18th century. And of course, it, it's a little bit problematic because it's exactly at this time that the second French colonial empire began. The contradiction between the ideals of the French Revolution and the real colonial France, notably for the native people, it was exactly the contrary. So basically, we have a situation where where France is reveling in its new and its in its in its strong identity of equality, liberty, all these kinds of things, and then going into new places and not at all implementing these things. And, and it, doing exactly the contrary. Doing exactly the opposite. And it seems that that is yeah. What does that do? What does that do to your identity? But that that the difficulty to organize this dichotomy. You know, it's like you have two friends. One France in metropole with new symbols, new rights. And in other world, overseas, you have an, another France with principle, rules and rights absolutely different. And it's especially true for the, the French Algeria. Right. And then for over 150 years, you have this situation of the, the dichotomy and the, the tension, I guess, between this. If we're looking at France of today, that lingers, right? Yeah, it's in place. It, it's something now very important inside our identity, and we don't want to recognize it. Because it's difficult to, to accept in France that you have a, a modification inside what was exactly the citizen uh, identity. We, we thought that for being a, a French citizen, you must be white and you must be a culturally Christian. But no, it's not possible because we had this very important empire with a population no white uh, and, and no culturally Christian uh, at the majority. So it's necessary to, to move the, the borders of the citizenship, you know, but it's a difficult process. What makes it so difficult? Because we have a connection very important in France between citizenship and universalism. And we, we have this myth, because I think it's a myth, that everybody can represent everybody. And especially if this everybody is a man, a rich man, and a white rich man. So the difficulty is to understand for all of us that universalism is something much more inclusive, much more inclusive for women, for minority, and of course for 
all the people who are in, in this very important legacy of colonialism. So one thing I have noticed when I, you look at politicians in France or people involved in politics and, you know, you look up their biographies and I'm always surprised at how many are actually Pied-Noir, you know, native French people who were living in Algeria, in North Africa, and then moved back to France after independence. Um, a lot of them seem to have gotten themselves involved in politics. I want to talk a little bit about the influence in France of, of the Pied-Noir. I think in certain region of France, it's a, it's a very important influence, in, notably in politic way. They return essentially in the south of France. Of course, uh, the Pied-Noir exode, like, like they said, was something very difficult. When the French government signed the Evian Accord with the Algerian resistance, one of the difficult questions was the, the status of the Pied-Noir. Nobody wants them, in fact. When we returned back to metropolitan France, they were received very, very badly, in fact. I can't help but feel like that sort of feeling of resentment, I suppose, when you know, you're being kicked out of where you have been living for decades and coming back to a place where you know, nobody really wants you. It seems when you look at contemporary migration and immigration issues, you can maybe understand why some of these people might be really resentful towards current immigration. Yeah, for most, most of them, you, you understand that, that they feel like they, they are stranger inside this country. And I think it's, it's an important key to understand. The France now, the Pied-Noir question is, is a very important thing inside the French identity, but nobody wants to, to hear that. And, of course, it was very simple to say that racism in France is only the problem of the Pied-Noir, you know. That the Pied-Noir were the ones who were subjugating the Algerians, and they're the racist ones, but in metropolitan France we have liberté, égalité, fraternité, and exactly. that's not our problem. It was easy to, to opposite the, the, the racism to, to this only category. So, so immigration is one issue. Of course, you brought it up in this idea of laïcité and the relation to Islam is um, obviously in the news a lot in France today, and a lot of people are talking about it. Um, I wonder if we could talk a little bit about the legacy of colonialism on that. Okay, in colonial context, one of the form of the resistance is the religion. It's really clear when you see the Algerian uh, liberation. The religion was the first weapon of resistance. So, of course, uh, you have this population built around the, the question of religion. It's also a question of civilization, of culture. So, and they, they arrived in France with, with that. The most part of the Algerian living France now arrived, in fact, during the Algerian war and just after. And they arrive with that, that Islam is a, is a weapon of resistance too. But a part of this population wants to, to access to, to the, the French rights too. The paradox of the situation that at the moment, when you see the, the sociological study about the integration of this population, you have very much more child of this immigration 
that was absolutely integrated now. Like, you're saying like the children of the immigrants of the 50s and 60s very much embraced the, the laïcité, uh, égalité, fraternité of France. Globally, yes. I think we have a bad interpretation of this population, like it was just one population. But it's a very yeah. diverse uh, community. You have a, a very important part of this population that, that thinks that, that secularism, laicity, is a good thing. You're talking about this idea of more inclusive history and rethinking how we teach it or how we think about it. How do you do that? The first step, it, it's, uh, it's equality. It's necessary to, to writing this story all together. For example, if we speak about the French colonization in Algeria, I think it's absolutely necessary to write the story of the French Algeria with Algerian historian. It can be only a story of one voice. It's impossible. So the first step is, is to collaborate. We can do that uh, very easily. Uh, we can, of course, write books all together, and we can speak about these books all together. And after the, this first step, to integrate in the history program inside the national education in France, the results of the, the historian work. The third step is to, to have a, a space to illuminate this complex history. And that's why I spoke about a museum of colonization. I, I think a museum of colonization will be a very, very good tool to explain for the majority of, of French population the reality of colonization. back in time now, but not too far back, five years ago, November 13th, 2015, to the day that we now know is the day of the Paris attacks. Yeah, this was a series of coordinated attacks in Paris and in Saint-Denis, which is to the north of the city. 130 people were killed, and most of them were at a venue called the Bataclan. That happened during a concert. Now, of course, this marked all of us, especially here in Paris. It was just a few months after the Charlie Hebdo attacks, um, also because it involved so many young people at a concert in the center of town. Yeah, I remember, Sarah, I was at the theatre at the time. It wasn't very far from the Bataclan. And so I turned off my phone and when I came out at about 11pm, I couldn't understand why everything was so quiet. And back home, my family was panicking because I hadn't picked up the phone. And because, as we said, these attacks had been taking place during a concert, a heavy metal concert, loads of parents, I remember, were desperately trying to locate their teenage kids. I was actually out of town, so I was one of those doing the calling around mm. to see if my friends were in the area, see if they were okay. Um, right after the attacks, there was an outpouring of memorials, flowers, photos, pictures. They were all placed outside the Bataclan notes written. And then it started taking over the Place de la République not far away with candles and flowers as well. Yeah, I remember going there. Uh, happily, I didn't know anyone who was killed in those attacks, but I, I went there to read some of the tributes that ordinary people were paying to victims of the attacks. Um, archivists actually started to collect that material. 
Our colleague Mike Woods called up Sarah Gensberger, who's a political scientist and lives near the Bataclan. She was among those working on collecting and analyzing this stuff. And she's interested in what it means for people to leave these kinds of messages and what it does to sort of a collective consciousness of these events. Um, many of them continued to leave material after November. The Place de la République was actually only cleared out in August of the next year. Since then, every year for the commemoration, some people come back to mainly the Bataclan or Place de la République, and they leave things there, they leave flowers, new messages, photographies, and also they speak with others, and they try to make a kind of collective interpretation of what it means, these attacks. Each year, there are commemoration ceremonies. There's an official one, which is quite somber, reading out the 130 names. And then the victims groups also do their own commemoration, often with concerts and speeches. And this year, of course, it will be a bit different because of the COVID crisis. Yeah, this year's commemoration ceremonies will definitely be curtailed. There will only be an official one. This year, because of the COVID situation, there won't be any popular commemoration, which is very, very tragic for the victim groups. So all the collective dynamics of memory will be forbidden this year. And this is even harder being the fifth anniversary. In a way, it was the year where there will be a passing from victims to the state because victims groups commemoration was going to move to the Hotel de Ville and also because the presidential decision to work at the opening of a National Museum of Society Facing Terrorism, which is a new Macron project. So it was in a way the year where the grassroots memorialization was going to move to a more state-sponsored and more official commemoration. And this, this passing is not going to happen. There's a sharp divide, isn't there, between old and new feminism in France. This newer, younger generation is far more radical uh, than its older sisters. It's, it's very involved in the fight against sexual violence, for example. I suppose this is happening all over the world, I mean, with Me Too and all of that. Yeah, of course, but the division here is a bit sharper because we've got this older version of feminism, the one that's defended by people like Paris's uh, woman, Mayor Annie Hidalgo. It's, it's based on this very French universalist idea of women's rights being linked to social progress more generally. And then you've got these younger feminists who they want everything to go so much faster and they want to overturn what they see as a very patriarchal system. Um, they're being accused of being rather anti-men by their opponents of being a bit separatist, of being anti-republican. And all of that came to a head in the summer when a feminist activist called Alice Courfin, who is also a newly elected town councillor, organised a protest outside Paris City Hall. Uh, the idea was to try and force the culture attaché Christophe Girard to resign. Yeah, he was accused of supporting a known paedophile and, and was also facing charges himself of sexual assault. 
Exactly. Now, Kufan was nonetheless accused of witch hunting. She got death threats for all mm. of that. But Girard did indeed resign in the end. She's continued to cause controversy, though, with the publication of her new book. It's called Lesbian Genius in English. Kufan knew that she was a lesbian from a very young age. But I was curious to know what she meant by lesbian genius. I used to think genius were men, like I was only getting acquainted with uh, musicians, uh, writers, uh, painters as a child that were men. And uh, I used to think that there was a, like a correlation that women couldn't be genius. And then uh, getting older, I discovered not only all those women who had been erased from the cultural history, but also that many of them were lesbians. Actually, in France, if you look at the feminists who were very um, active in the 70s, I had never been told. Most of them were lesbians. Tell us who, who you're thinking of. The most famous gesture of French feminists in the 70s is this bunch of nine women. They went to the Arc de Triomphe, which, which is uh, on the Champs-Élysées, where there is a celebration of the unknown soldier, the soldier who died during First World War. And they went there with banners saying there is more unknown than the unknown soldier, his wife. And they wanted to pay tribute. And this was marked in France as the beginning of women's leap. And I had always had this great admiration for these nine women. And it took me 20 years to see that most of them, they were lesbians. They were not just feminists and, and everything. And they were lesbians and nobody ever told me this. So it's kind of magic when you revisit all your idols and when you think, oh, she was a lesbian too. And, and this is really quite amazing to do. But at the yeah. same time, it's uh, sad to think that it's never said. So clearly this book is partly a celebration. As lesbians, we often are presented as kind of a nightmare. Even for people who think they're doing well, if they want to promote and act against uh, lesbophobia, they will do video films that show how difficult it is to be a lesbian, how people are horrible. But at the end of seeing this or reading such things, you would think, gosh, I hope I'm not a lesbian. And I think this is important to show how damaging uh, lesbophobia can be. But I also think it's very important to say it's kind of a joy of like, uh, I'm so glad I'm a lesbian. It's, 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 it's like uh, I'm living my bell life as a lesbian and that's why the lesbian genius also. You talk in the book about the joy of coming out and how it's an act of courage but also an act of love and you, you refer to a, a homoerta, so a kind of omerta on homosexuality. Just tell us a bit more about how difficult it is to come out in France. It's specifically more for uh, public figures. Uh, we have very, very few uh, celebrities who are okay to come out of the closet. Uh, this I realized during the time of 2012-2013, uh, where in France we had a very, very uh, agitated dis public discussion on same-sex marriage. And during this discussion, we had a lot of uh, homophobic groups demonstrating every day, in the media every day. And during this time, we thought as activists that we needed the support of public figures. So we contacted them very directly, telling them, please, please come out. And that, that's the time when I saw how terrified they were and how they were not going to do it. Really, the blockages on coming out are terrible. What are this, those blockages due to, do you think, then? I think that there are, there are several explanations. 
Uh, one of them is the very strong separation we have between private and public life. Public figures are never activists in France. How they refuse to help their own community, how they feel this is not their role. And another thing is on the question of minorities in general in France, there is this cultural background that as a minority, you need to be discreet. You are welcome in the society. We can, like they say, tolerate you. But please, and they say it this way, yeah? please be discreet. And this applies to gay or lesbian, but also to black people, to Muslims, to any minority in France. If you want to be heard, to have a, a public discourse, you need to act as like this kind of French citizen who would have no specific uh, life, no specific identity. Then you get the right to say something as a public figure. Now, reaction to your book has been, you know, really quite extreme. And a lot of media attention has focused on this one particular passage, which is relatively short, but where you're talking about male domination and you say something along the lines of, we have to eliminate men, we've got to eliminate them from our minds, from our representations. You say, I no longer read books by men or films by men or music by men, at least I try not to. People have seized on this and even the, the Minister for Gender Equality, Elizabeth Moreno, said that you were looking to separate men and women, to oppose them and to replace one form of domination by another. What did you mean by that phrase? Yeah, it was actually quite a surprise for me that they would pick on that phrase. I, I didn't see it coming. And for me, I was saying a very basic feminist theory and uh, praxis, uh, which, uh, for example, Virginia Woolf already uh, wrote that, well, she would rather read books by women and stop reading books by men because we already know about it. I mean, I was at school in France. I was at the university in France. I have read enough books for centuries. I know. I mean, it's not saying I'm eliminating all men. It's just I know their books. I know their music. And I know so little about uh, women literature, uh, women's cinema. And the fact that this kind of statement brought me, you know, death threats is very significant. I call it andro-obsession, like the obsession with the man, the panic that there would be erased from the public sphere. We're so far from this. I mean, all the, the major uh, literary uh, public prizes, the uh, cinema festival in France, they promote men, 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 men. So it's okay, I think, that we're saying, well, as an individual, I'm not saying everybody should do this. And yeah. I was only saying, this is my way of doing. This is my way of surviving in this very patriarchal society. And that it provokes sex rage, it tells a lot about where we are at. You're also a member of the Paris Council and you pushed very, very hard to get the culture minister at Paris City Hall, Christophe Girard, to resign. Christophe Girard, someone who had actively supported the writer Gabriel Matzneff, who was accused of paedophilia. And Girard himself has since also been investigated for child abuse. And he did indeed resign. But you really came in for a lot of criticism. Some people say you're coming from a very extreme form of French feminism, which may have its role as a militant. But once you become a politician and you're supposed to be representing both men and women, people think that maybe there you've overstepped your role. 
Yeah, at the Council of Paris, I have many of my colleagues, they will tell me, uh, you're not acting as a politician, you're acting as an activist, your place is not here, uh, you belong to strict activism, here we are doing politics and everything. Of course, I think this is uh, <laughs> a nonsense, and this is only a way for them to protect the way they've been doing politics for years, and part of it meant protecting men in power, behaving terribly, and indeed I'm new in politics. And indeed, I come from uh, an activist background. If I see something which is uh, very violent, I react. And uh, this is what happened. This, this is what came to a clash, is that I didn't change my um, habits. And uh, actually, it worked. Because, you know, at the beginning, everybody was telling me, you will never get out. He's uh, been there for 20 years. He's a man of power. And for me, it was like, no, not a problem. And I think it's the same thing with the book. It, it's sure we are facing a major confrontation in France. And, and we need to be able to discuss between those two sides. But what's very sad is even the discussion is not possible. Well, that's it for Spotlight on France. Uh, thanks for supporting us. We'd love to hear from you. You can send in your questions and comments to spotlight.france at rfi.fr. You can find us on Instagram, too. It's Spotlight on France. And as always, this episode was mixed by Cécile Pompiani. You can find some previous episodes at rfienglish.com or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll be back again in two weeks, Thursday, November 26th. Bye. Bye, Alison. Bye, bye, Sarah. Bye.